0: All right, everybody, thanks for joining us for another episode of the Tame the True podcast. Uh, this time we're going to be talking about Reboa, although maybe not Reboa in the sense that you heard it talked about before. Certainly we've heard people uh, wax eloquently about placement of it in, in the you know, either pre-hospital environment or in the hospital. But what we really wanted to focus on is what happens when you need to transfer somebody who's already got one in place. absolutely logistically, these are not the easiest things to take care of. Uh, And so to help us with this discussion, uh, we have uh, Mike Sturwald, uh, we have Bill Hinckley, uh, and we have Justin McLean, uh, who gave a great talk at uh, CCTMC that uh, Bill and Mike had seen. They wanted to have him on the show so we could uh, talk with him a little bit more about it. So, uh, Justin, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Justin, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself to get started.
1: Sure. So I am an emergency physician, PGY-4 in Denver, uh, Colorado. And uh, my interest in this topic came from uh, when a surgical colleague who was finishing up their training said, hey, my, my first goal is to bring this to this technology, this RBOA technology, to my new institution and I said, hey, that's that's great um, at your level three trauma center. What are you going to do once you have this in? He said, oh, I'll just probably fly him to the regional trauma center. And that got me thinking about... Um, transport teams needing to at least know a little bit about this technology before the first uh, inter-hospital transport of Reboa. So that's how I first kind of got interested in uh, in the topic and started giving this talk to uh, some of the transport teams here in my region and then at CCTMC.
0: Great. Maybe before we get started too in-depth, let's just, for people who don't know about this, what is this? What is Reboa?
1: Yeah, so RBOA—it's an acronym. It stands for Resuscitative Endovascular Balloon Occlusion of the Aorta, or some people call it Resuscitative Emergency Balloon Occlusion of the Aorta. And essentially, what it is—it's—it's it's an alternative to thoracotomy. It's a—it's really an innovative technique that uh, is meant to control hemorrhage uh, temporarily and augment afterload. And and really, the rationale behind RBOA is—is is aortic occlusion via an endovascular approach, uh, which supports myocardial and cerebral perfusion until hemostasis can be obtained. And really, it's the same goals as an ED thoracotomy, but, but it's less invasive, it's less resource intense, it's less dangerous for staff, and really it spares an already compromised patient additional morbidity with less acidosis, uh, decreased lactate, decreased PCO2, uh, fewer resuscitation fluids and pressors required, at least according to the uh, white paper on this.
0: Bill and Mike, what uh, was it about the lecture you saw at CCTMC that really made you want to have Justin on the show?
2: First of all, Justin, thanks again for being here. You, You tore it up at CCTMC, and it was so innovative because all the discussion that I've heard thus far about Reboa, it's been in terms of the sexiness of the placement of it. But no one has talked about transport logistics, and that's what I found so revolutionary about what you uh, what you discussed so tell us a little bit about for for your average critical care transport provider who at this point in time is not going to be at least in America placing Reboa but might get called about called upon to transport one what sorts of things do they need to keep in mind
1: yeah, absolutely. Uh, so there's a, a bunch of issues that come up. And, and the main reason is Rebola originally was meant to be placed in the hospital and patient taken from the emergency department up to the OR. And so there's a lot of logistical issues that we don't think about um, if we were actually going to send this person from one emergency department or one uh, hospital to another hospital. Um, so, for example, um, when we Place a RABOA in the hospital. Essentially, we put this large sheath in, we put the balloon catheter in, we blow it up, and literally the standard paper uh, that describes the technique says one person's job is to hold the Reboa in place while we're transporting the patient to imaging or to the OR. And clearly, that's not realistic for uh, the transport environment. Um, and so, the first thing that we need to think about. If we're going to transport this patient, is securing the reboa. And sometimes in the hospital, we put a stitch or two in, uh, sometimes we slap a tegaderm on it, or sometimes we just hold it uh, while the patient's being moved out of the emergency department. And so when we're transporting a patient with reboa, we have to think about how are we going to secure this balloon so it doesn't migrate during transport. Um, and so there's bunch of ways that we've kind of come up with to do that um so first of all the sheath itself which is right now at least a 14 french sheath can be sutured in place um that's easy but the reboa cat not sutured in and so we have to come up with some sort of way to secure that and and you can use potentially one of the central line uh, clips that you might uh, suture down a central line with uh, or potentially one of those a-line kind of butterfly uh, snaps that you would put on an arterial line to hold that in place Um, and then you can certainly try maybe a purse string uh, stitch to hold the ribo in place but some way before we transport this patient we have to secure the device
2: Okay. And how are we going to know if the device migrates on us?
1: Yeah, that is a great question. So the current devices, these Cook catheter devices that we use, at least in the United States, have no markings on them. Um, and so we kind of measure uh, the device um, externally uh, before we uh, put the rebo in because this is a fluoroscopy-free device. Uh, it's placed, and then it's just left there. And, again, there's very little time between the emergency department and the OR, and so um, someone just holds this in place. Um, but what we need to think about when we're transporting patients is somehow marking the riboa, um, the actual balloon catheter, so we know where it was placed inside the sheath. Um, and so we can do that with uh, a Sharpie, we could do it with a piece of tape, but essentially you've got if you can picture uh, a 14 French sheath, which is a very large, I don't know, almost the size of a number two pencil, that's sticking out of someone's artery, and then inside that sheath is the actual balloon catheter that's fed up uh, into the aorta. So At the point where the balloon catheter actually exits the sheath is where we need to mark it. So uh, we need to uh, somehow indicate that that's where uh, the team that placed the roboa wants it, and we need to ensure that it hasn't moved from that point.
2: Awesome. Now, what sorts of things are we going to want to document uh, specifically? I, I would think that this is somewhat like a balloon pump transport. Uh, in terms of documenting neurovascular status of the uh, affected extremity. Is that correct?
1: Exactly. So I think documentation is going to be absolutely essential uh, when we're transporting uh, this device. And so you can imagine, um, and I and I do want to drive home the point that Robo is essentially, um, for all intents and purposes, exactly like cross-clamping the aorta, aorta. And so essentially that leads to increased myocardial and cerebral perfusion. But what that also means is there's no distal perfusion to internal organs or the lower extremities. And and so that we know, but we also have to be um, very diligent about documenting um, vital signs, neurovascular checks uh, before transport, during transport, and before handing the patient off. And so I've created a, a flow sheet um, that it also includes a checklist um, that has a very similar kind of documentation uh, that a balloon pump would have. And so, you know, you're going to want to look for pulses and obviously you shouldn't have distal pulses but if you start feeling pulses um, during one of your checks you know some things going wrong with the balloon Um, document modeling and uh, all those types of things you would normally document with a balloon pump you want to absolutely document uh, during transport um, with the roboa in place
2: Sterwald, I know you've been just itching to get in here. What questions do you have?
3: Well, the questions that I have, uh, uh, good morning, everybody, by the way. Um, the uh, the questions that I have uh, are similar to the questions that you raised. So as I, everybody is well aware, my interest in this particular realm is optimization of the clinical logistics. And while that's generally uh, everything that we're talking about here, um Justin, I'm interested in your thoughts with respect to you are making a determination that your transport team is going to be equipped to um, uh, transport this technology. What kind of, you said you're putting together uh, documents to help and checklists to help, but Are you going to put together like a kit, uh, a bag? Uh, If so, what are you going to put in it and uh, uh, run with that?
1: What are your thoughts on that? Sure. So right now, as far as I know, we have not done any inter-hospital transports at Reboa. And kind of the goal of all of this is to prepare teams to actually transport Reboa when that first happens. And so I think kind of like balloon pumps, um, teams need to come up with their own protocols. They need to get all the stakeholders involved and come up with, um, ways that we're going to to do this safely, and um, kind of contingency plans. So if something isn't going well, what is the next step for the transport team? And I think that's going to have to be an individual team's uh, collaboration with the emergency department, with the acute care surgeons, uh, when they're considering transporting this. And it may be a few teams initially that are kind of qualified to do this or realistically it may just be the team that's available uh that gets the call to transport this first reboa um and so i think we we do need to think about this before we actually do the first transport so the teams know kind of what this thing is what are some of the complications um and what we need to think about uh during transport um and so i i don't know that we necessarily need a, a bag um, like we have for balloon pumps, um, because I'm not sure how much, you know, we really can do if something goes wrong with the Reboa. Um, having said that, uh, London HEMS has kind of their own protocols on uh, kind of the crashing Reboa patient, and their their plan is if the Reboa isn't working properly, they're just going to recite. They're just going to actually put it in on the other side. Um, that's not something that we're necessarily going to be doing here in the U.S., um, but I do think we need to come up with protocols, have potentially checklists and flow sheets, uh, for the transporter Reboa.
2: Let's talk about positioning and spaghetti management for a minute, because, uh, I have found in the transport environment, spaghetti management is perhaps the most challenging thing. And I would imagine that Reboa is going to be the ultimate challenge in spaghetti management. Um, any particular tips you've got for that?
1: Yeah, so I, I agree. This uh, the reboa is a mess once once it's placed. There's the catheter that's hanging out. There's the uh, wire, which is. 260 centimeters long, so 8, eight and a half feet, uh, that's sticking out of this person. Uh, there's syringes that are attached to the roboa. The sheath itself is sticking out. The patient probably has a foley. There's kind of a lot going on. Um, and so absolutely, we need to be able to manage uh, this mess prior to transporting the patient. And the wires is kind of flipping around while we're trying to transport the patient. If it's a hot load, um, you don't want any of this stuff to get kind of caught up in the wash. And so absolutely, we've got to keep this uh this mess managed. And so I think um, a few tips here would be um, keep the tubing coiled. Um, and so you can coil up the tubing that's sticking out. The wire itself, again, is there's probably going to be multiple feet of wire uh, that's sticking out past the patient um, that I would absolutely recommend coiling, taping down to the patient, um, and then either securing the syringes that are attached to the uh, balloon catheter or just removing the syringes temporarily. And um, you know making it look nice so that you're not worried about uh, any of these pieces getting caught on the pram or in a in a strap uh, and potentially kind of pulling the balloon itself
2: and what about actual positioning assumedly the patient's going to be supine Um, if the patient happens to have uh, been pan scanned and their spines are cleared would you ever consider setting them up or do they have to absolutely remain supine
1: I would keep them supine only because you have this, again, very large sheath right at the groin, and I would probably immobilize the lower extremity um, either with straps or some sort of knee immobilizer. Um, likely if this is a kind of a polytrauma patient you know they're already going to be intubated sedated um, and so that may not be an issue but if for some reason they're not this is isolated uh, pelvic injury and they have the riboa for that reason they may not be intubated but i would probably keep them supine immobilize that lower extremity and reduce the risk of of having this thing move or get pulled um, so I, w- I would try to keep them supine
2: okay and I'd, I'd like to talk about that balloon for a second. So we've got this balloon that is blown up inside the patient's aorta, either in Zone 1 or Zone 3, completely occluding flow. What, what's that balloon full of, first of all, and it, does altitude come into play?
1: Yeah, that's a, a great question. So the balloon sh- is filled with solution and, and it's usually normal saline. Potentially there's a little contrast solution mixed in there to help uh, highlight the balloon during imaging. Um, but it is uh, a liquid filled balloon. Uh, but if you've ever actually seen um, the balloon filled up, um, there is usually a little bit of air in there. Um, however, I as far as the effects of altitude, it's not like an endotracheal uh, balloon where we have to worry so much about uh, changes in pressure. Uh, but this question actually does come up a lot from the critical care transport teams. And so um, to address it, I thought um, to with an example might uh, be appropriate. And so I, I think if we're transporting, for example, in Colorado, we've got a, a bad let's say, bike crash up in the mountains and maybe a uh, level two trauma center uh, placed a and Now they're flying them down kind of from over the continental divide down to Denver. Um, I think probably all of your listeners uh, who are flight folks know Boyle's Law, which is the volume of a mass is inversely proportional to its pressure. And so, again, that's related to kind of an air-filled balloon. But if you assume there is a little bit of air uh, in the balloon, I think – as the aircraft kind of descends and altitude decreases, barometric pressure is going to increase and then that volume of gas is actually going to decrease. And so it is possible that as you're descending or as you're landing, of course, at the worst time, the blood pressure does start to drop because uh, that gas is uh, decreasing and there's more blood flow. So it's it is in theory possible, although I think because mostly it's a liquid-filled balloon, it should not be an issue. And then the kind of the question is, well, what do you do about it if that's if that happens? And I again, I think this is something you're going to have to come up with uh, a protocol within your own institution and with your own with your own team. But I don't think it would be unreasonable to put um, a little bit of fluid back in that balloon if that happens to be the case.
2: Is the cuff of that balloon essentially similar to the cuff that you would have on the end of an endotracheal tube in terms of, if I I was losing my patient's blood pressure and it seemed like they were regaining some pulses in the feet, so I felt like I needed to put something more in the balloon, um, is it the same sort of connection between my syringe and the cuff in order to infuse some more saline into that balloon?
1: It is. It's a pretty simple connection that you could just uh, use that syringe that may already be connected to the catheter and and inject a little bit of fluid. Although I would say the balloon itself, uh, a vascular balloon, is uh, quite different than a a standard kind of endotracheal uh, cuff. Um, And the vascular balloons are really kind of compliant. They're low-atmosphere uh, high volume balloons. Um, and so, um, think kind of sausage versus, uh, baseball when they're actually inflated, elongate, uh, as they're filled up with uh, solution.
2: I'll leave the sausage jokes alone. Gotcha. <laughs> Thank you for that analogy. Sterwald, what
3: else you got, man? Dude, I thought, th- I thought that was a good analogy. I actually appreciated that.
2: Thanks. So Justin, where where are things going from here in terms of this technology? What what improvements are on the horizon?
1: Yeah, so as you can imagine, people are very excited about this. There's problems happening uh, throughout this country, and I think once be pretty game changing. And so I know there's a company. That's already uh, applied for FDA approval, and they are expected to their products expected to hit the market uh, early next year, and I think that's going to again change um, how we think about uh, riboA and. and you know, who's going to potentially be placing reboa. And the big difference is in these new products that are coming down the pipe are that they're they're going to be probably seven French uh, sheath compatible, compatible. so they're going to be much smaller sheaths. So instead of the 14 French sheath, which uh, 100% of the time requires kind of surgical removal and repair of the artery, uh, these smaller uh, sheaths are actually going to be more like central lines. And so once uh, the balloon's been taken down and the... Uh, the a surgery has been performed, then we would just remove the sheath like you would a central line. And so that's going to be game changing. Um, they also might have. Uh, over overpressure uh, safety uh, issues with the balloon. So one one concern is how do we know how much fluid to put in the balloon and, and not damage uh, the aortic wall? Um, so some of these new products may have kind of pressure safety uh, issues built into it, and then um, they're going to have things like integrated A-lines and things like that. So there's a lot of uh, fascinating uh, development that's happening now, and we'll kind of see uh, what hits the market.
2: What with- impact is that going to have on who can place these things do you
1: think ah, that that is a uh, that's a tricky question i think fraught with a political peril but um, I'll, I'll take a shot at it so right now in the united states acute care surgeons absolutely own this technology um, they are the ones who are placing it um, and will be for the kind of foreseeable future and, and I think if you ask them uh, publicly, what they'll say is, um, you know, we, we need research to back up this new potentially life-saving technology – And if everyone starts doing this, we're going to lose the ability to capture some of that research and really be able to put out um, good evidence-based recommendations on this technology. Um, So that's one issue. Um, Another issue is uh, there is an argument that sometimes you might actually have to do a cut-down Uh, to get this uh, product in place, although I think rarely these days with kind of the training that uh, both emergency physicians and surgeons have with ultrasound, that I don't know that that um, necessarily is going to be an argument uh, down the road. And then the last argument, which I think is also very fair, is that the vascular surgeons, the trauma surgeons are going to be the ones who are asked to take care of the patients that have a Reboa placed and also have to manage the potential complications uh, from a Reboa that wasn't placed by their service. And so if there's a vascular injury, if there's multi-organ failure, uh, if there's limb loss um, as a result of Reboa, now these patients are kind of dumped on the, on the surgeons to manage that complication. So, I think from the emergency physician side, I think this is well within the scope of uh, an emergency physician's uh, practice. Uh, essentially, it's needle insertion, wire, uh, and a and a line over that. So that's something that we do uh, daily in the department. Um, so right now, you know, the question is, you know, how far in the future is that? And I think if you asked the surgeons privately, I think they recognize that that it's coming. Um, and I think even even Todd Rasmussen, who's done a lot of the research on Reboa, said during uh, grand rounds at Shock Trauma that, that this technology has to move out of the hands of surgeons. And then he also said, we hope that it can be put closest to those that are hemorrhaging. So I think it's coming. Um, but again, that's... Uh, in the future, right now, we need the research first to support this technology.
3: Go ahead, Mike. I agree with everything you just said there. Uh, I I wanted to just add one thing. and The the one thing that gives me a moment's pause about the Reboa technology, uh, specifically with respect to initiating it in the field, um, in the emergency department is one thing because you – when a patient is evaluated in the emergency department, it depends. I guess specifically what the capabilities of the emergency department are. You start to have an idea of what the patient's actual injuries are. Whereas in the field, um, those of us who practice as retrievalists don't necessarily have that same situational awareness. the The thing that I honestly I think that needs the most. Um, research and the thing that needs the most uh, just collective thought and for us to really think about is exactly what patient are we going to initiate this technology on in the field because it, it's going to take a hot second to do it. And if we're prioritizing um, doing this procedure, then we are prioritizing doing this procedure and not kind of the, the usual standard of care. So I just, I want to make sure that we really have agreed as a kind of multidisciplinary group, exactly what patients are going to most have benefited by having this initiated before we, before we just kind of eyeball it for lack of a better term in the field, because then I think we're going to get into trouble with Oh, we burnt twenty minutes or thirty minutes to initiate this technology, whereas the hemorrhage was actually coming from somewhere else. It would kind of be the nightmare scenario. So I don't know. That that's kind of just my two cents. With res- to, just to dovetail on what you were saying with respect to exactly what we need to delineate for going forward. Yeah, it's a it's a great point. And
1: I, I guess I in an email conversation I've had with Megan Brenner, who's one of the, the leading uh, researchers uh, and advocates for the Reboa, who's at shock trauma, um, her concern as far as pre-hospital placement is, is who is going to make that decision to actually place Reboa in. And, you know, it's one thing when you have a a team that is staffed with uh, physicians uh, like your guys' team, but for the majority of flight programs, you know, who's going to actually make that call um, and determine that, yes, the bleeding is in the abdomen or this is absolutely from a pelvic uh, fracture and that's where the hemorrhage is coming from. Um, And so that was her big concern, at least through our uh, conversation, is who's going to make that call.
2: As a non-trauma surgeon, thus far, it's been essentially impossible to get Reboa training in America, uh, or else I haven't looked hard enough. However, I would like to give a shout out to the Reanimate conference, which is coming up next February in San Diego, uh, which is a conference that's going to be mostly focused on ECMO, but they are, as I understand it, bringing in Dr. Kenji Anava to teach those in attendance about Reboa as well including us, uh, emergency physicians that'll be there. I don't know if they have any spots left or not, but Sterwald and I will uh, be there and we are stoked.
1: Yeah. It's, it's an interesting, uh, place that we're in right now with Ribo and who's doing it. And I think that, you know, the vascular surgeons know from their kind of experience as a, as a new field that, you know, if they're told that they can't do a particular procedure, they're just going to learn how to do it and ultimately do the procedure. And I think at the end of the day, if, you know, if the acute care surgeons hold on too tightly to this, then we're then uh, emergency physicians and other physicians are going to go rogue and teach themselves. And I'm not sure that's the kind of most responsible way to roll this out. I think, Um, you know, being responsible in terms of who's doing this, having the right training, um, having the right technology is important. Um, so I think we have to be a little bit careful to, um, you know, to have the research to back up doing this technology. But I agree that at some point um, other physicians are just going to teach themselves how to do it.
2: So in summary, at this point, it's, it's a technology that certainly seems to have a future. Um, it's, being used pre-hospitally across the pond, that may or may not be coming in America, but if so, it's probably a ways off. But in the meantime, it is pretty foreseeable that some trauma systems may start placing them at level two or three trauma centers and then transferring those patients. And that's something that critical care transport programs should start preparing themselves for and start uh, educating themselves about the technology so that they can safely Transport patients who already have Raboa in place. Uh, Justin, any any other last minute thoughts, things you wanted to cover?
1: No, I think that uh, I think that's exactly right. Again, I don't. We're not quite there yet, uh, but I do think it's worth uh, all of us thinking about this and at least uh, educating ourselves, so then we um, have some familiarity when we show up and this thing is sticking out of someone's groin. We know what to do with it when we actually have to transport them.
0: Well, great. Thanks for, uh, thanks for joining us. It's been really, really helpful. I mean, I think that, uh, as we've all said, like these are definitely going to be patients that we are going to be moving at some point in time in our careers in the next probably, uh, certainly next five to ten years i would imagine we're going to have to be dealing with this and hopefully the new technologies can make the transport easier just as they seem to be making the placement easier uh but uh really great appreciate you joining us and kind of walking through a lot of the logistical challenges that this uh this current technology uh presents us
1: yeah thanks for having me guys i really appreciate it it was a lot of fun and i'll see you guys at cctmc this year
3: right on yeah, absolutely, man. Thank, thank you. Seriously, this was uh, uh, really, uh, I think, uh, fun. All right, thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time.